Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. I want to thank our sponsors first, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. This podcast on Canadian political history was particularly sponsored by Mr. Don Bourgeois and Ms. Susan Campbell of Kitchener, Ontario, in honor of their parents, Jean-Marie and Mary Bourgeois, and Aloysius and Regina Campbell, who instilled in their children a passion for all of Canada, and in particular, for its political history. Thank you very much. Now let's get on with the podcast. One of the most radical changes to the writing of Canadian history over the past 40 years has been the attention devoted to the contributions of women. Starting from an entirely darkened stage, writers and scholars have made enormous progress in shedding all sorts of interesting lights on the women in the Canadian past. My guest today is particularly special. Her name is Veronica Strongbog, and if no one has done it, I will call her the doyenne of feminist studies in Canada. Dr. Strongbog is now Professor Emerita at the Institute for Gender, Race, Sexuality and Social Justice at the Department of Educational Studies at the University of British Columbia and an adjunct professor at the University of Victoria. Her latest book is A Liberal Labour Lady, The Times and Life of Mary Ellen Spear-Smith. It is published by UBC Press. We reached her at her office in Victoria, British Columbia. Nikki, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. I'm very happy to be here as well. You're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What happened on January 24th? 1918. Well, it's a remarkable day, certainly in British Columbia's history and and indeed in Canada's, because it was the day that Mary Ellen Smith won uh, a by-election in Vancouver, uh, a by-election to actually replace her husband, who had died a year earlier. And so she ran as a free woman, as she put it. Uh, and uh, won against a quite crowded field um, and very successfully as an independent. She's the first woman elected in British Columbia. Uh, there are, are uh, there is, uh, there are two other women elected in Alberta uh, earlier, uh, both uh, very much a product uh, of the war. And so she is the third woman elected uh, to Parliament in Canada. Let's talk about. Mary Ellen Spear-Smith. She was born in England in 1863. She was raised in a mining family and for a while was a school teacher. She met a guy called Ralph Smith, a coal miner who was much older than she was, and they married in 1883. Then they decided to emigrate to Canada, choosing Nanaimo, BC, because it was a mining town also. 
At that point, the story takes quite a turn, doesn't it? What happens next? What happens next is, in fact, a real continuation of what had happened earlier in North Britain. Um, they come to Canada, you know, very much as uh, committed activists. Uh, they had been active within uh, their church, uh, the Methodist Church. They had been active in politics uh, and also active in the cooperative movement. They moved to Canada, like many um, residents of North Britain do, in hopes of greater independence, uh, greater better health, um, because uh, Ralph was a miner and his health was very much affected by uh, working in the mines since he was 11. And uh, they come for the opportunity that empire on the West Coast represents, an opportunity to do much better than they could hope to do in the northern mining villages of Great Britain. Ralph Smith, her husband, uh, is a big part of her life at this point. He gets involved in politics. He becomes a liberal. What are Ralph Smith's politics? Well, Ralph arrives here, as uh, many uh, British miners do, as uh, very much a champion of a progressive politics and a politics that represents some combination, and it ranges very widely, uh, of labor and liberalism. And sort of North Britain is a home of what's called liberal laborism. And so that you see the Liberal Party in Britain, and to some extent the Liberal Party in Canada as well, at this point is exploring the possibilities or the prospects of finding some kind of alliance with new working class voters. And what this means for liberalism would be a kind of big tent liberalism, the kind of liberalism that we might see perhaps at the moment between uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, and uh, Justin Trudeau, the sense that the Liberal Party can be expansive enough to include working class progressives. And so there is a real division, of course, both within the Liberal Party as to whether working class voters are actually welcome. Um, it's a, a problem for the Liberal Party in Great Britain, and it's a problem for the Liberal Party in Canada, because the Liberal Party, of course, also represents significant corporate interests. And so the same issues that we see in the late 19th century are the issues, of course, that we're wrestling with today. Now, when Ralph and Mary Ellen arrive, they're very much proponents of the view that liberalism is an expansive doctrine, a doctrine that will include all meritorious individuals. And by meritorious, they mean hardworking and smart. And they would put miners, miners' communities, both women and men, really close to the top of a sort of uh, hierarchy of merit. And so they were hopeful that the elite within the Liberal Party in Britain and then the elite within the Liberal Party in Canada and British Columbia would recognize meritorious workers and include them within a new expansive politics. And don't forget, this is before the Labour Party emerges in Great Britain and before, of course, we get the CCF in Canada. So the, cho the choices for people like progressive people, and they are progressive within the context of their times, of Ralph and Mary Ellen are either some version of the sort of labor socialist parties that are struggling to be born in Canada and Britain, or a updated liberalism. And for them, the choice is an updated liberalism, what is called the new liberalism, the liberalism that will 
stand um, coincident, really, with the foundations of the welfare state. So Ralph is a unionist. He's in favor of labor unions, but he's also not a socialist. No, and in fact, he becomes one of the fiercest opponents of socialism in Canada. He becomes very quickly, for a new immigrant, the president of the Trades and Labor Congress of Canada, really an extraordinary accomplishment, and very much reflecting, I think, the kind of, uh, really, the historic uh, uh, importance of the mining industry, and also the role that miners have in the national imaginary, certainly in Britain, and to some extent in Canada, as, you know, the the hardiest, the most courageous, uh, the most outspoken um, of the working class. Um, so he's very much a representative of the aristocracy of labor. Okay, but this podcast is not about Ralph Smith. He dies in February of 1917, and at that point, Mary Ellen Spear makes that radical decision. She's going to run for his seat. Well, she had always been uh, a helpmate and more than a helpmate. Uh, in fact, it was argued by people like uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King that she was the source of his success uh, because they were clearly a team, whether they were working in the cooperative movement in Great Britain or whether they were working with unionists in Canada or whether they were working uh, with their first constituents in Nanaimo and then later on their constituents in Vancouver. Vancouver. She was, I think, what we would see today as a charmer, uh, somebody with an immense capacity to uh, really uh, encourage people to believe that she and her husband were on their side. She spoke very well. She had apparently a lovely voice, and she was typical of many uh, working-class women of their age. She was very much involved um, in her husband's work. Uh, certainly, miners' wives in gen general uh, kept uh, the family going by making sure their husbands stayed healthy and their family as well in a very, very difficult industry. She wins her election, as you stated at the outset. Um, she's 55 years old at that point. What's it like to be the first woman elected to the B.C. legislature in Victoria? Oh, sorry, the legislature is in Victoria, but she's elected from Vancouver. Thank you. It's important to say. In some ways, it's, it, 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 it isn't a, a big jump for her. I mean, it's a big jump for Canada. It's a big jump for British Columbia to have a woman in the legislature. But she had been a very public figure since she came to Nanaimo in the early 1890s. Um, so she'd been a leading figure in progressive Christianity. She'd been a leading figure in the WCTU and the suffrage movement. She was also one of the few activists as a suffragist who also uh, managed to uh, find a community both among workers and among the, the middle class. And, you know, uh, Prime Minister Laurier said that, uh, that really Nanaimo had a second MP uh, in Mary Ellen Smith. Uh, they didn't need just uh, Ralph. They got as a freebie, as it were, Mary Ellen. So when she's elected in 1918, she's very comfortable in the political milieu. People know her very well at this point. There had been a lot of controversy about uh, her running, um, because certainly liberal women had wanted her to run as a liberal in that by-election. Um, but 
some of the more conservative members of the Liberal Party had not been keen on her running as a Liberal. And she ultimately decided that her greatest chances of success were to run as an independent or as a free woman, um, you know, a, a moniker that I think is really significant, because freedom for women in the period was seen as highly controversial. So she, she runs as an independent, uh, but with liberal and labor sympathies. And she's not unusual in this. You know, the uh, British Columbia legislature uh, had sorted itself out into partisan uh, politics, the liberals and the conservatives at this point. But there was always a strong labor group often affiliated uh, with the Liberal Party. So she, so she wasn't alone in that sense, but of course she was alone, and indeed uh, she would be alone during the entire period she sits in the legislature till 1928. So she goes in as an independent. It's a Liberal government in British Columbia, and she's not there to waste her time, is she? She wants to get things done. She has a clear agenda, and her agenda in the first instance is mothers' pensions. In other words, some support uh, for women who are struggling to raise children uh, by themselves, uh, either with a uh, an injured husband or a, a husband who's not there largely because he's probably because he's dead, um, and uh, equal wages for equal work. So those are the two major uh uh, pieces of her platform. She also has uh, other interests that she wants to follow, but certainly throughout her career, it's equal wages for equal work and the situation of vulnerable mothers. She sponsors legislation? She tables bills? She does. Uh, and she does it with the support largely of the Liberal Party and with uh, the Labour members. And so that we do get uh, mothers' pensions and we get uh, some of the earliest progressive legislation uh, on wages for women. They're quite, I mean, ultimately, um, the results are far less than she hoped because the implementation is always uh, a problem, you know, as, as we find so often the case. And, and yet, and yet, still profoundly uh, impactful, considering she's a, a newcomer to, to the legislature. Uh, but as you say, she's not a newcomer to politics. Uh, she's known and she has a following already. She does. And, you know, the Liberal Party uh, desperately wants to capture that following because it wants those new voters. Uh, the Liberal Party in British Columbia is vulnerable then as it remains vulnerable. Um, and it's vulnerable on the left and on the right. Um, and so it hopes that Mary Ellen is going to be its key to success with new voters and its opportunity to demonstrate that it really is a progressive party. But there's always tensions in the party. Uh, her own husband had tried to create a new liberalism and had been largely unsuccessful, although he does die as, you know, Minister of Finance for British Columbia. But he's not successful in transforming the party. And ultimately, she has no more success than he does. Now, she's invited to join cabinet uh, as a minister without portfolio, but she resigns in 1921, so barely three years into her political adventure. She wasn't happy in cabinet. Nikki, why did she quit? Well, she quit because she said it was just like being a fifth wheel, because when she was brought into cab cabinet and she really wasn't brought into cabinet, what she was was given a new title with no wages, 
no clerical support, no secretarial support of any kind, uh, no special mandate. She was given the title of Minister with Portfolio, the same as uh, Irene Parlby was given uh, in the Ministry of the United Farmers of Alberta. Uh, at much the same time. And Irene Parlby said it's an absolutely useless, meaningless post. Um, and that's certainly how uh, Mary Ellen found it as well. She felt betrayed. Uh, so she had uh, run in the general provincial election in 1920 and had topped the polls in Vancouver. Vancouver at this point is a multiple seat riding. There are uh, five uh, representatives. And she topped the polls in 1920. She'd also toured the province on behalf of the Liberal Party uh, when she came out as a Liberal. And then she felt betrayed uh, because she thought she was going to be given a ministry for women and children. Uh, she wasn't, um, and in fact had uh, very little influence in the in cabinet at all. And so she resigned in the fall. She reminds me of another minister from Vancouver yes. who recently <laughs> resigned from the Liberal Party, federal this time, because she was very disappointed with her leadership. Yes. <laughs> Without yeah. naming names, but as you've already indicated, the wheel of history keeps turning. Oh, it does. Uh, <laughs> and, and indeed, there's a, a, a new book out on um, Flora MacDonald. Yes. Uh, and uh, I was reading the review of that in the, what, the Canadian Literary Review. And it said that one of the things she says is that it was just terrible, and she would never want another woman to be the only woman. And, of course, she was uh, Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs for Canada. And Mary Ellen found uh, it extremely um, stressful as well. Um, and, of course, she was the uh, uh, first in the province and the first cabinet minister in the British Empire and the British Commonwealth, um, and a very lonely figure. Indeed. Now, the book is about Mary Ellen Spear-Smith's life, okay, but it's very much focused on her ideas as a feminist. How would you describe her contribution to this field? We often associate women at this point as quote-unquote first-wave feminists. Are you happy with that label? How would you describe this, and how would you describe Mary Ellen uh, Spears' ideology? Well, I think I think Mary Ellen is a is an interesting figure because in so many ways she you know she represents that preoccupation with formal politics that's characterized characterized the first what's known as first wave feminism. Um, I think what's often forgotten, um, certainly uh, in Canada, is how preoccupied first wave feminists were with wage labor. Um, so she was very concerned that women get recognition as mothers and get state support for their mothering. But she was also very conscious of the fact that many women worked for wages and that their work was valuable and that it wasn't being recognized. So in many ways, she's a, a very typical first wave feminist. Uh, she is not good on uh, what, what we would consider today, not good on issues like like race or sexuality. Um, but she's very much uh, a woman of her time and, and a progressive woman of her time. Um, and her demand for equal wages, for equal work, for example, uh, really puts her to the forefront of the feminists of her day. 
Can we talk more about first wave feminism, just to make sure it's clear uh, in the minds of our listeners? We're talking about a movement that really starts, what, I mean, in the, somewhere in the 19th century? A concern for a place for women in, in the public sphere, uh, a concern for education for women, educational opportunities for women. There's a strong um, prohibitionist aspect. C can you describe first wave? It seems as though, Nikki, first wave feminism takes an awful long time before it gives way to second wave feminism. Mm -hmm. How do you explain all that? Well, I mean, the, the, the first sort of uh, first wave feminism is very much associated with suffrage. And of course, it is associated with the expansion of uh, the franchise to include working class men at the end of the 19th century. Um, and that women um, are also part of those debates about what freedom and emancipation means. So Mary Ellen, for example, uh, was very much, uh, you know, a supporter of the emancipation of slaves in the United States. Uh, she saw that liberalism was uh, part of this sort of great emancipatory movement of which women's rights was a key part. And for her, uh, women's rights had to be associated with politics uh, because she saw politics as the way to change the world and indeed to bring in the kinds of changes with respect to support uh, for mothers and to support for wage earning uh, that she thought were absolutely essential. She was also, you know, very much a, a British imperialist. She saw the British Empire leading this progressive uh, shift in world politics about, uh, and women should be part of this progressive shift. And British women in particular, and probably if in her heart of hearts, she would have said North British women or Scots uh, in, in particular. And of course, she's speaking as, uh, you know, the daughter of a cold miner, the wife of a coal miner, uh, a woman who saw the men, around, the men around her working hard and not getting um, the kinds of support uh, that they needed both to do their work and to be uh, good citizens. Um, and so her issues were very much associated uh, with the class from which she came. But she was also very optimistic that there didn't have to be a sex war, you know, because feminism is often associated, you know, with sex wars, the the um, fear that, uh, that men will always be opponents. And for her, this was not true. And just as she didn't think it was necessary that there be class wars, neither class wars nor sex wars were necessary, that education would bring everyone into this common camp. So the migration, if I can call it that, from first wave to sec what we call second wave feminism really starts to take place in the 50s and 60s? Is that the way we're supposed to understand it? Well, I, I'm never comfortable. I mean, what, what with waves, I mean... Yeah, me neither. That's why I want you to explain it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's certainly press that come to political attention, um, but feminism is always there. It's, it's there in a kind of inchoate kind of fashion, you know, before the 1850s. It's there in the 1830s and the 1840s. Um, but it's also there, uh, you know, throughout the 20th century in groups like the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Uh, 
Graham, uh, the uh, Federation of Business and Professional Women uh, of kind of feminism is there as well when we see the uh, beginnings of organization among uh, indigenous women and black women and Asian women, um, a real consciousness that women are not being treated equally. Um, it comes to public attention, of course, when it involves uh, formal politics. And so the second wave is associated uh, with the Royal Commission on the Status of Women, which reports, of course, in 1970. Um, but it had a long history uh, before it, uh, associated with uh, the peace movement um, and associated with continuing demands for equal wages. Indeed, indeed. Now, you you make no excuse for the fact that uh, Mary Ellen Spear uh, was roundly prejudiced against indigenous people. She was prejudiced against Chinese people and, in fact, any minorities. Given the times we live in now, um, are you being courageous in seeking to publish a book on Mary Ellen Spear Smith? Oh, I, I, I don't think I'm being courageous. I think I'm trying to help us all identify. Um, Mary Ellen Smith was a woman of her times, but she was better than most of her times as well. Um, so in her uh, support for um, uh, poor mothers, in her support for working women, uh, she was certainly in advance of the great majority of Canadians, both women and men. She was a progressive uh, feminist. She also shared uh, the prejudices of the majority, and the majority were the settlers. Uh, she took for granted that Britain uh, and the British Empire stood at the, you know, the beginning of uh, progress and that democracy was best uh, uh, advanced through Parliament and through the opening of doors to the meritorious. And she would put the British as the most meritorious. She was also, however, conscious, and this became very clear uh, in the later part of the 1920s, um, that Asian women uh, within the context of Asian politics also deserved recognition. She supported uh, uh, Asian suffragists, particularly Chinese and Japanese suffragists, but she saw Japan and China as contending empires, and they should keep to their empire, and Britain uh, had the right to manage their politics as they wished. Uh, it's also, you know, not clear that really she had much contact with uh, Chinese uh, Canadians or Chinese residents uh, of British Columbia. Uh, she always claimed that she never hired them, and uh, many women, uh, certainly middle-class women in British Columbia, had Chinese help. Uh, it's much more likely that she in, encountered uh, Indigenous people, certainly in Nanaimo, um, where they were very active in farming and in mining and in fishing. She would have seen them very much as, you know, and, and Indigenous women uh, as well as Indigenous men. Of course, there were very few um, Asian women uh, since they were barred effectively uh, from, from entry. Um, but she would have known Indigenous men and women. Um, and she saw them as a dying race. In other words, she accepted the science of the day and the politics of the day. 
So it's, she's still important. I mean, in your mind, she's still important because of what she contributed, but also because of what she represents. Yeah, and those ideas haven't, you know, disappeared entirely. Uh, we have to come to terms with them. There's no use pretending, um, you know, that she was, you know, the inclusive liberal that liberals would like to be today. She was not. Um, she was a woman of her time, but she was also better than her time. And I think that has to be acknowledged as well. From your perspective, 90 years later, how do you imagine her? How do you describe her? What what was she? What would she have been like? Had you uh, had you met her for tea, let's say, on a, on a on a nice Saturday afternoon? Well, apparently she was a lot of fun. Um, she was very musical, and she had a great singing voice. She had a great stage presence. She was involved in all sorts of theatrical presentations, notably in Nanaimo, but also uh, in uh, Vancouver. She, she had a stage presence that made her probably the outstanding woman performer of her day in terms of politics. Only Nellie McClung uh, would have been as good. She had a lovely speaking voice, and a uh, you know, as I talk about in the book, you know, she used uh, womanly wiles uh, to get it, to get ahead because she was dealing with you know men who were dolts and who were, uh, you know far more uh, uh, certainly racist and classist than she was, and she endeavored to manipulate them. So she used you know the arguments of reason that women were as rational and as talented and as hardworking as men and deserved the same recognition. But she also tried to persuade them um, by, uh, you know, teasing them and uh, treating them in a kind of joking manner. She had four sons, and as speaking as the mother of three sons, it does give you uh, uh, an insight into sort of male psychology. Um, so she was very, very good on the platform. She, uh, you know, regularly uh, had a piano wheeled out, and she'd be playing the piano. Um, and Charismatic. She, she was quite charismatic. And, you know, as William Lyon Mackenzie King, who had a fondness for beautiful women, uh, but not a fondness to listen to women, really, uh, <laughs> no. he said uh, she was beautiful, and, uh, and that was a... Uh, you know, part of her political capital. Um, and even when she died, she was still an, ex an extraordinary figure. Um, so she came into a room and she, she was just, uh, I think, very engaging. Uh, now, some people hated her. Uh, some parts of the Liberal Party hated her, the Conservatives hated her, and Unionists hated her because she was so successful. And she's a threat. And yes, yeah. Uh, but she was. She remained a, a quite an extraordinary figure. She spoke with an English accent, you would imagine. She spoke with a, a, apparently a North British accent, and that would have been really typical of a lot of uh, BC politicians. Uh, you know, there were a lot of miners, there were a lot of immigrants from North Britain, and even in the House of Commons, you know, British accents uh, were commonplace. Uh, so she she found herself at home. Um, and, you know, she was taken up by certainly the elite in Ottawa during the time her husband was an MP there. That's right. He was an MP during the, the, the first 10 years of, of the, the century, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, she and she was very popular. 
Um, so she remained a popular individual. And of course, you know, for, for much of the, the last decade of her life, uh, she was president of the BC Liberal Party. Indeed. Now, let's talk about your book, and I want to come to the classic Champlain Society question, because we're always obsessed at the Champlain Society with sources. Uh, what were the sources for your book? Well, I, I've written many biographies, as you know, and this biography was as frustrating as the others. Uh, women, uh, women's diaries and women's personal papers are rarely saved in Canada or anywhere else. And indeed, there are effectively no papers for Mary Ellen Smith, nor indeed for uh, Ralph Smith, reflecting you know, the problems that working class people have in general to have their papers solved saved. But fortunately, we're, we're now in a time when, you know, many newspapers and other forms of the print media are now available electronically, not as many as one would like. And some of the women's press is still waiting to be uh, put, uh, made available electronically. But this volume, like most of my volumes, I think relies very, very heavily on uh, the popular press. Well, so since you've raised this, this topic of, of biography, let, let's let's broach that. Uh, you've been a very active biographer in in the last half of uh, well, the last few years, let's say. You've written or you've you've written prefaces uh, to books uh, by Pauline Johnson. There's a preface to uh, Nellie McClung's uh, writings. You've written a wonderful book on Lady Aberdeen and, and her husband, uh, Laura Mitchell Jameson. Elizabeth Smith, and now Mary Ellen Spear Smith. What attracts you to this method of writing history? I, I, I sometimes I wonder myself, but but I think biographies provide uh, I think the most accessible point of entry into the past because they tell you something about you know real people. And my effort has always been to discover the person who was behind the politics. Um, I, I, I don't like to deal in stereotypes. I like to engage with the reality that this person, whether a man or a woman, uh, had to encounter in their own lives and how they tried to make sense of the world in which they lived. I mean, I think that that in some ways historians, perhaps political scientists as well, are in you know, inveterate gossips. I mean, I'm just very, very interested in how people sort out the world and how they make sense of their own place within it. And so I'm trying to make that sort of imaginative leap um, to people who, for me, pe people who have been lost sight of undeservedly, who helped to shape the world in which we live. And I want people to understand that those people in the past, and whether we wanted, we could go much further back than I've gone back, I only go back to the 19th century, but there are people like ourselves with hard decisions to make and with a limited range of options. And so I hope that provides uh, an opportunity to reflect, for people to reflect on their own choices. And we can see that Mary Ellen didn't make the choices that we would have liked, you know, as seeing ourselves as, you know, living in a, a complicated world of multiculturalism with, you know, many, many players who deserve a hearing. Um, but we can see how she came to make the choices that she did. She was born a working class woman, you know, with very few opportunities, um, very little education. Um, she was married very young uh, to a char another charismatic figure, she had to make choices um, that weren't the choices that most of us have to make. And yet she still made her mark on history. 
Okay, you've made your mark on history. I want to talk about you for a few minutes. Uh, you've had a long career. You've taught at Trent, Concordia, Simon Fraser, UBC. Uh, this is after you did your PhD at the University of Toronto on a topic that was very much about early feminists, the Parliament of Women, a book that, by the way, is almost impossible to find, which is tragic. I hope it's being republished. I hope you have plans to have this republished. Um, nobody was really teaching, uh, nobody was teaching f about feminists in the 1970s. Nikki, what, what prompted you to devote yourself to this topic? Well, I have to say, I, you know, uh, in so many ways, I've been very lucky. Um, you know, I came of age at a time uh, in the 1960s when, you know, as Brian Palmer's book on the 1960s reminds us, there was all sorts of tumult uh, from Indigenous peoples, from workers, from women, uh, from the left generally. Um, and I came up at the University of Toronto as, as an undergraduate with scholarship funding, which isn't always available to people today. Um, and I came, you know, of age uh, when Canadian history uh, was rediscovering uh, the progressive movements of the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and the U of T department at that point um, was very much, you know, in the forefront of the rediscovery of Canadian history. And here I was, you know, a nice white straight woman um, you know, with some interest in history um, that could be encouraged um, to, as Wendy Mitchison was at York uh, with Ramsey, with, with Ramsey Cook, uh, we could be, both of us, and we, we laughed about it, uh, we could be encouraged to sort of do women um, as part of the sort of new discovery of, of Canadian history. And I was very much, you know, supported as a graduate student, and I was, a you know, a student activist at, at U of so you did your PhD with Michael Bliss. I did my PhD with Michael Bliss and Michael Bliss wanted who was a very, very talented writer. Uh, you know, he wanted to fill a gap in Canadian history. So he thought that I would be part of that filling the gap. And then I progressed rather further than Michael had anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, the world continued to be a world uh, in which uh, women's rights uh, were at issue. And one of the, the things I should mention um, that Mary Ellen was very conscious about was violence against women. Um, the WCTU was in the forefront of really opposing, you know, alcohol uh, because it was seen as a source of violence against women. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, WCTU. And for my generation of women, uh, the sort of rediscovery of violence, both public and private, against women, you know, was really absolutely critical in uh, the creation of a, a new generation of feminists. Uh, the M Montreal Massacre in 1989 uh, was an absolutely formative experience for me. Um, but certainly domestic violence, uh, I knew of it well before then, not in my own personal life, but certainly in my family's life. Um, and these were, you know, inspirations that 
continued to be formative for many feminist scholars and of course remain formative today uh, as we you know see uh, the costs of violence both in the residential schools and against uh, indigenous women so that these were kinds of influences that uh, the U of T history department wouldn't have anticipated in the 1960s that would continue to shape my scholarship but isn't it a wonderful thing about Canadian history is that it keeps evolving, it keeps changing. We discover new topics, it keeps refreshing the field. Yes, no, exactly. And I think that's one of the other reasons that biographies are so important, because they can see, they can show you how a person can change in their own lives. You aren't the same person, I suspect, that you might have been in your teens. I'm certainly not the same person. And Mary Ellen was not the same person uh, she was in her teens. She wasn't the same person she... Uh, then when she died. She learned new things so that as human beings, we all hope that we can, you know, change and respond to new um, forces. I think that's one of the, the key reasons why I read biography. Uh, and I read a lot it's because I want to know how people change, how people are, you know, as Donald Creighton said, how, how character and circumstance conjugate with each other. And it is human, and we are human, and that's why it's always interesting. But you've stayed with these early feminists. They've been part of your life, uh, your professional life. You recently completed a magnificent editing project with UBC Press on the history of women's suffrage and democracy. And by the way, we recorded two podcasts with some of your authors. We did one with Sarah Carter on the prairies, and we did one with Tara Brookfield on Ontario. Now, you've had a privileged position over this field in Canadian history over the past, I'll say, almost 50 years now. What needs to be done in your mind? What needs to be done in uncovering the history of women going forward? Mm-hmm. Well, I, it, much remains to be done. Um, obviously, the women that are still privileged with biographies are largely still white women. Uh, we do get, and, you know, I, I, I wrote, myself with Carol Gerson on on Pauline Johnson. But there are still many figures out there that need much more attention. Uh, you know, if I'd like to put a plug in a plug in for anything these days, it's definitely you know returning to your whole question of sources. Uh, we need much, many more sources. Uh, we need uh, to become available. We need them to become publicly available. I noticed in the United States there was something on Facebook that said the uh, the American Census for uh, 1950 is going to be available. Well, you know, the census is uh, we haven't got the 21 census available. 1921. Yeah, 1921. <laughs> 1921 census. I know, census. it's terrible. And it's very hard to get access to the manuscript census. Uh, they're not easily accessible. Certainly, I mean, you can get, with some work, you can certainly get the 81 and the 91, 1881 and 1891 census. But we need, you know, much more support for archives and libraries. I think that, you know, if we're looking, you know, to build infrastructure to understand our own society, uh, to create uh, a society that uh, understands itself better, uh, is that we need more funding for archives and libraries. Um, And and for producing electronic sources. I'm very conscious of, you know, being on the west coast of British Columbia um, and, you know, making a trip to Ottawa uh, is, you know, is a big deal. And, 
and it's a lot of money, and the archives has been cut to the bone. It's very hard to get the sources there, uh, the material that you want, which is, you know, one of the reasons I've resorted to newspapers. Um, fortunately, there are, you know, newspaper archives that are making newspapers around the world broadly available. But as you know, Nikki, we're in a huge deficit in Canada. We're not digitizing anywhere near what we should be. It's appalling. You know, no, it's absolutely appalling. Uh, and, you know, I'd like to put in a special, you know, brief for the newspapers of small towns. Yes, absolutely. You know, because until, you know, 1921, the majority of Canadians were uh, not urban dwellers, and many Canadians still continue to live in small towns. And it's that small town press. One of the reasons I was attracted to Mary Ellen is that she spent, you know, almost 20 years of her life in Nanaimo, a very vibrant, uh, engaging community with important politics, important politics between Indigenous and settlers, Indigenous people and settlers, between women and men, um, and a politics that helped shape certainly British Columbia and by extension Canada. And, you know, until recently, and we only have one of those newspapers available. And when I worked earlier on mining communities such as Fernie, uh, we have got the Fernie Press. Um, so getting newspapers, which sometimes, unfortunately, are the only primary sources that really exist, I, I, we can still hope that we're going to get some personal papers. A call out to uh, people to check out their attics and basements. It's always, <laughs> it's always invaluable. Don't throw anything out. Give it to your local archive. <laughs> well, something, you know, one of the, the uh, things that I would love to see is that Mary Ellen apparently wrote a, a movie script. Oh, gosh. Uh, early in her career in the 1920s uh, that involved sort of an industrial uh, confrontation between workers and uh, bosses. And uh, she settled it very easily with a love story. So not entirely convincing, but I would, <laughs> love to see, I would love to see that. Apparently she took it down to California, but is there any sign of it? No. It's somewhere in some dusty archive somewhere. Oh, please. Wouldn't that be wonderful to <laughs> anywhere? Well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Nikki Strong-Bogue, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak to me today to talk about your book. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. It was fun. speaking with Veronica Strongbogue about her new book, A Liberal Labor Lady, The Times and Life of Mary Ellen Spear Smith. It's published by UBC Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to Champlain Society to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded on March 28th, 2022, when hopes are up that the pandemic is now ending. Jessica Schmidt is our producer. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Music